Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Okay, um, good morning everybody. Um, are we receiving one another? Yes, we are. Yes, we are. Uh, I just need to get a little bit closer to the microphone. This is John Lafferty and um, this is... Um, Keep left. Mm. Program in the Victorian Labour College. And in the studio is uh, myself, John Lafferty, as I said, and Chris Gaffney. And Chris, you're going to start off today speaking about your chosen subject. Uh, yes, yes. I, I, I thought when well, I can get my act together. Um, I thought I'd talk a little bit about Russia. We've concentrated uh, enormously on the dominant imperialist power in the world, which is the United States. And we've never really, we never really discussed the other imperialisms out there because what leads to world wars is competition and struggle between rival imperialist powers. And that's true of the First and Second World Wars and it's true today. But let's get some home truths about Russia. Putin's Russia is an imperialist state dominated by a capitalist oligarchy that controls the state and has developed a pretty bellicose attitude to its neighbours. The the oligarchy reproaches them for having taken advantage of the collapse of the Soviet Union in order to escape Russian domination. Embracing an ultra-nationalist ideology that gives a good deal of space to racism, anti-Semitism and homophobia, its authoritarian neoconservatism has become a virtual standard for the extreme a European extreme right. And I must say, it came as a surprise to me when I looked at some of the supporters of Putin. In Eastern European, in Eastern Europe, the Russian Federation is supported by important sections of the extreme right, such as Attack in Bulgaria, the National Party in Slovakia, Jobbik in Hungary, the National Democratic Party in Germany, the National Front in France, the Freedom Party of Austria, the Northern League and the New Force in Italy the Flemish Interest Party, and so on and so on. How do they support Putin? The Russian Patriot Party organised an international conservative forum recently involving a large number of these movements, with participation from eastern Ukraine military leaders linked to fascist groups. We must never forget that the denunciation of Russian imperialism was always at the heart of what Lenin said. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, in fact, didn't he advocate the defeat of Russia in 1914? Uh, Russia is a unique imperialist power because as it colonised the non-Russian people of its empire, at the same time it brutally repressed and virtually enslaved the mass of Russian and non-Russian peasants inside Russia, generally from the 17th century onward, a process that resembles the colonial expansion by the Europeans, which, of course, reached its absolute height in the 1880s. Well, Russia didn't become that big by accident. It started off just as Moscow. Well, that's right. It was that's just right. Moscow and the surrounds. That's right, and under Peter the Great. The biggest country in the world. That's right. Peter the Great and Catherine the Great, it spread. With the emergence of capitalist imperialism in the third part of the 19th century, Russia sought to compensate for its relative weakness of its economic and financial monopolies by exclusive military control of a vast territory. And as Lenin said in 1916, 
by special facilities for robbing minority nationalities. I'm quoting Lenin there. In this way, Russia could, could try to play in the big leagues as a junior partner of France and England, which they did. While the financial capital's monopoly was shattered by the October Revolution of 1917, leading to the creation of the Soviet Union, great Russian chauvinism and the privileges associated with it remained, particularly after Lenin's death with the rise of the Soviet bureaucracy led by Stalin. This is why Lenin, in his last writings, proposed affirmative action measures for the oppressed nations and gave cardinal importance to the struggle against social nationalism. He described Russia as a vulgar, great Russian bully. End of quote. After Lenin's death, his fight would be lost, and the theory of socialism in one country, which is the hallmark of the bureaucracy, would mask the triumph of great chauvinism over the rights of other nationalities. After World War II, the Soviet Union reigned again over its empire, and its claims on an area that extended from China to Iran to Turkey. Beyond that, in July forty-five, Stalin even proposed establishing a Soviet protectorate over what is now Libya in North Africa. Nevertheless, the Soviet Russians' hour of glory would last, last less than half a century and would be followed by an unprecedented collapse after 1991, with the loss of 14 non-Russian republics, some 5.3 square millions kilometres of territory. Today, the Russian Federation still has 21 non-Russian republics, which comprise 30% of its territory. Reconstituted finance capital, the relative fragility of which is compensated by the support of a powerful state apparatus. In other words, their financial segment isn't as strong as that of Britain and America, but they have a much more powerful state apparatus to control matters. Um, And this state apparatus now becomes the first recipient of profits from the exploitation of the natural resources of Siberia in the far east. This is organised in a completely colonial fashion. Resources flow to the centre, which returns a small part of them to the various regions for their own development. At the same time, this system encourages Moscow to adopt an expansionist policy towards neighbouring states, which ultra-nationalists present as an effort at at the reunification of Great Russia. We hear the same story from a man called Igor Strelkov, a Russian military man who's been engaged on the side of separatists in Transylvania and uh, is fighting uh, for the Russians in the eastern Ukraine. He said this, and this is typical of what I mean. He says, Kiev, which is the capital of... Ukraine. The Ukraine... Kiev, he says, is a Russian city. I want a new Russian domination, which is historically justified. <clears throat> the Ukraine... Colonialist delusions. Yeah, I mean, well, they're, 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 in, they're in Turkey, they're in Germany, Britain. You get these people all over the place that want to turn back. They're Israel, they want to turn back the clock. Well, that's right. The, the glory Ukra- years. He yeah. says the Ukraine has, has been and remains part of Russia. My dream is that Russia re-establishes its natural borders its natural borders, as they were in 1939. Oh, they always have a favourite date in history when everything was just perfect. I mean, look at Mussolini. His favourite date in history was the height of the Roman Empire. Yeah, yeah. He was going to create this. That's right, of course, of course. (laughs) That was a little joke. With the rise of great Russian ultra-nationalism, 
the racist and anti-Semitic ideologies in the tradition of the Black Hundreds, who were gangs who mm. uh, murdered Jews, mm. that formed in the reaction to the revolution of 1905, have once again found fertile ground. The uh, uh, Islamophobic campaigns against the people of the Caucasus and of Central Asia, of course, occupy first place. To this, we must add the right-wing proper against immigration of people of colour, particularly Africans, who become victims of a record number of aggressions. <laughs> Jews, Jews as well, are once again in the sight of anti-Semitic groups opera- operating openly through social networks and in the street. After uh, Moscow's military intervention on the side of the Ukrainian separatists, the call for a sacred union justified the increase in political repression. The number of imprisoned activists rose from 1,500 in 2013 to 2,500 in 2014. A law against, quote, inciting social hatred, end of quote, allows the government to prosecute any criticism of police behaviour. Judicial harassment is particularly ferocious in the Crimea, where any protest against the Russian annexation is systematically repressed. Now, of course, it was Western intervention and and interference in the Ukraine, the West Germans have a, uh, a policy which is attempting to, to integrate the Ukraine into the, into the dominance of Germany and Western Europe. When you say the Ukraine, I think that the tendency uh, for a lot of people, I've heard if you say the Ukraine, it's, it's a suggestion that it belongs to Russia. Um, oh, I see what so you it's, mean. So it's, so it's really more correct, it's more correct, I believe, to say... Ukraine. OK, fine, I stand corrected. Um, judicial, and, and it was their interference that gave Russia the opportunity to move into the Crimean with some, uh, with a, they did a referendum, we don't know how straight or honest that was, but there was a, at least some suggestion that there were, were people in the Crimean who obviously wanted the Russians in. Mm. But once they're in there, now any protest against the Russian a- annexation is repressed such as the case of the student unionist, environmentalist and anti-fascist Alexander Kolchenko. We also might remember Boris Nemstov, who was assassinated near near the Kremlin on February the 22nd, shortly after he began to denounce the business deals surrounding the preparation of the Olympic Games. Nemstov was particularly hated by the ultra-nationalist milieu because he was Jewish and because his critique of the wars carried out out against non-Russian peoples within the Federation. In truth, in both the East and the West, Ukraine is ruled by seven dozen oligarchs who got their hands on the essential economic resources of their region. These people control the media, political power and the police force. That is, when they don't have their own private militias. In the East... These monopolies are particularly concentrated and exclusive, most notably those of Rinat Ashmetov, the veritable baron of Donbass. Amatov supports separatists to defend his own privileges. Other oligarchs support the government of Kiev that emerged after the May 2014 elections. We might note that the present president of the Ukraine took advantage of the privatisation of the confectionery centre, people make lollies and stuff, he made a fortune in chocolate, $1.6 billion, according to Forbes. 
That said, the rule of the oligarchs is more fragile in the west of the Ukraine because they've got smaller monopolies, they oppose each other, and they face a degree of popular mobilisation and independent political expression facing them. Moreover, the Kiev powers endorsed an elementary democratic demand, which we've got to support, that is, the integrity of the Ukrainian nation, against the age-old oppression of the Russian Empire, which was made manifest again by a wave of repression in the Crimea. As I pointed out, it was the United States' interference in the Ukraine which gave Russia its big chance to win back this region that they had lost. Of course, the Western powers, above all Germany, France and England, but also the US on a global scale, attempt to profit from the Ukrainian crisis. Historically, the 20th century has demonstrated how the Ukraine, like Poland, is an area of confrontation between Russian and German imperialisms, the latter being at this time the dominant force in the European Union. That's the, the, the Germans. In 1999, the Czech Republic, Hungary and Poland became members of NATO. Then in 2001, it was the turn of the Baltic states, as well as Romania, Bulgaria, Slovakia and Slovenia. Between 2003 and 5, all these countries joined the European Union. For Russia, the prospect of a European security based on the central role of Germany was illegitimate while at the same time Russia gradually returned to the economic levels of 1990 and finally surpassed it in 2005. So they're only just recovering from the pillage that went on in, 19, in the 1990s, in the 1990s yeah. where state property was basically thieved yes. by Russian oligarchs and foreign ones, not just Russians. You can see this in the video. There's a very good programme that went out, and you can see these oligarchs, a big group of about ten, just standing around slapping each other's backs, broad smiles, champagne. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As oh, they yeah, carve up. said to be the biggest theft in history. Public air. At the same time, Russians' ambitions for power seem less and less compatible with the interests of the Western power. Now, I think there's no doubt that Putin has probably won the battle in the Ukraine, but not yet the war. The price for this has been the strengthening of Russia's most reactionary nationalist leaders. Last December, in the largest statement in Grozny, in front of thousands of armed men, Razman Kidrov, the pro-head Russian head of the Chechen Republic of the Russian Federation, presented his men as the president's special battalions. He said this, we know that the country has an army, a navy, and an air force, and nuclear warheads, but we also know that there are missions that can only be performed by volunteers. Mm -hmm. Those within the West, West and left who accept legitimate Putin's claim that Russia supports the struggle of the people of the Russian-speaking East Ukraine against the fascist junta in Kiev are in fact providing a cover for the ongoing offensive of Russian imperialism on its Western margins. That's not to say that there isn't a crypto-fascist regime in, in, Kiev. In, in Kiev. It's high time for the left to definitely break with such a geopolitical and chauvinist view of the world, often tinged with racism, that praises any form of opposition to the interests of American imperialism by any tyrant who comes along. And I confess to some guilt. Sometimes if Russia has frustrated uh, the will of the Americans, it tends to make you 
think a bit more sympathetically about the Russians. Well, well it's a that's bulwark. been my mistake. It's a bulwark against American imperialism in Ukraine and in Syria over the past two or three years. Yes, that's right. It has been. But the, the point we're making here is it's not, uh, it's not to the advantage of the Ukrainian people. It's, uh, it's for Russian imperialism. But uh, all nations act in their own interests. Well, yes, they do, but not necessarily in other countries. Hmm. Um, Shouldn't these struggles and aspirations of the exploited class and oppressed peoples of the world, we should stand up for their imagination in the East and in the West and the South and the North, and these should be supported unconditionally. Can I just bring up a couple of questions? Uh, thanks, Chris. Just one, one, last, one uh. last thing. Russian intervention in Syria mm. is in part, they felt obliged to, to intervene there, um, Got because they there. didn't want what had happened to Libya mm. to happen in Syria. Because yeah, they have a presence in Syria and they certainly didn't want Syria to go the way of Libya where where their interests would not be served. So uh, there again, it's their presence in Syria is basically protect their interests. Mm. But yeah, of course, and they do have a lot more interest in Syria than I believe they have in Libya. I think Syria is far more important to them. They've got bases there. Yeah, that's right. And that's they need right. to have access to the Mediterranean. They need to have what Russia always wanted, the warm water port. That's right. Needs to have that. But I was going to bring up a couple of things because uh, you mentioned, uh, I think you were referring to the pre-World War One Triple Entente which is, uh, you know, the, yes, the, the yes. agreement with England, France and Cyrus Russia. And you called Russia uh, a junior partner of France and England. I think Russia was a bit more than just a junior partner. Uh, not really. Not right. Uh, we could argue mm. that. I mean, the, the, by the time so, the revolution broke out, the Russian soldiers were fighting without bullets or guns. Yeah, but they were fighting the bulk, as they were in the Second World War, of the, uh, of the central powers' attack. You know, they were actually... Yeah, yeah. Well, I off. mean, we can debate that. I, I think that's <clears throat> yeah. a relatively minor point. Yeah, I mean, but, you know, but, and we go on to that, uh, the, the, you know, the revolution. You know, I mean, Russia was very backward. I mean, they'd only just got rid of... Officially gotten rid of serfdom about 20, 30 years previous. 1863. So, e economically, 50 years previous. So uh, e economically they were very backward. And in many ways, socially they were very backward. And mm. things just don't change <laughs> as soon as you have a oh, total no, revolution. Not, you know? no. So that's, there's something there. Uh, I think some of those non-Russian republics apparently have had votes. And how legitimate are the votes? Uh, a lot of them wanted to stay with the Soviet Union before the Soviet Union collapsed. They didn't want to go with Yeltsin. Yes, you know? yes. But, of course, that didn't work out. And apparently quite a few of them uh, still want to remain with Russia anyway. Right. But uh, I just want to speak about, um, well, it's, I, I call it legal tax avoidance because the thing is we have companies in this country who, 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 are, who, are, who are not paying the tax they should pay, but it's quite above board. Yes, yes. It's oh, perfectly yes. legal. No problem. I mean, apparently one-third of Australia's largest 1,500 corporations paid no tax yes. this last financial year. And a majority of those that did pay tax paid it at a rate of less than 5%. Uh, we, we've stated yeah. yeah. this before, and yeah, it's, yeah. Out, it's outrageous yeah, and needs all, to be repeated. This is all legal, right? In 2013, apparently, Rupert Murdoch received an $886 million tax refund, which the Australian Taxation Office didn't even bother to appeal. $886 million. Yes. Now, contrast this with the page three of this uh, Wednesday's Herald Sun. That was the only time I buy it, right? Page three of this Herald Sun, which bragged about Centrelink recipients in Werribee, right, yeah. being busted, being busted because they'd been overpaid $4.3 million. 
This is a poor working class suburb out there on yeah, Werribee, yeah, right? Yeah, and shared amongst how many people? Yeah, how many people? Probably thousands of people. Yeah. I didn't mention that. Didn't mm, mention no, that no. was the average that they're actually ripping off, you know. But 4.3 million compared to one man, Herr of Newcorp, uh, Rupert Murdoch, 886 million. For every $1 taken in Werribee, 206, $206 has been taken by Murdoch. Yeah, but Murdoch's one of our chaps. Yeah, well, Murdoch is the owner of their own son. <laughs> so, yeah, like, I think it's, it's been mentioned before, don't expect any criticism <coughs> of uh, Murdoch and the Herald Sun. Now, Federal Treasurer Scott Morrison on Tuesday in the Federal Parliament, he bragged that his government is doing something to seriously crack down on tax avoidance. Unlike the ALP. But this is this That's is the company's... lie. This is the company's... This is the ones he's saying he's cracked down on because... Hawkey was, of course, going to start it off and stuff off. Yeah, yeah. Um, this is the actual tax avoidance of what they're officially supposed to pay, which isn't anything like near enough. No, 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 right? of course they're it's still not. still avoiding that. Now, I saw a list of these companies just, just briefly uh, during the week. These are the biggest companies you can name. Are these, all, these are all household name companies. It's just like everyone is on there. But... This isn't what Morrison is talking about. This isn't tax avoidance at all. This has been done legally, and Liberal Labour and the Greens... Yeah, it's yeah. OK. It's OK. No problem. You no know, Donations, and you know, we've got to look into all that stuff. Yes, so, you wonder how they can keep a straight face and say, we've got to raise the GST, mm. which will affect everybody and the poor adversely. While this raw, blatant, obvious rorting, and not to mention rorting... Not even paying workers their due. I mean, 7-Eleven and, we could say, small business, not just in 7-Eleven, all over the place is underpaying its workers. That's not a problem. Also, i tell you what's another not a problem for the government is when employers don't pay their superannuation. Mm. My son, he had a job. He's meant to be paying superannuation when he finished the job. He realised the employer had paid no superannuation at all. Mm. Now, I stupidly thought, oh... The government will be onto that like a shot enforcement. Not at all. Mm. No penalties for the employer. No. You want to pay it off over the next two years? Sure, no, no. problem. Yeah, no problem and with that. no chase-up, no follow-up that he'll actually pay it. And I mean, seriously, is Scott Morrison the man you should trust to go after tax avoidance? His own leader, our Prime Minister, <laughs> Mr Tumble, has himself profited from laws which allowed him and st still allow him to avoid paying his fair share, his fair share of tax. When Turnbull was questioned about the money he has in the Cayman Islands, which is a well-known tax haven, mm -hmm. he and his detractors were set, uh, he said his detractors were engaged in the politics of envy. So <laughs> is the Herald Sun engaged in the politics of envy, you know, oh, and all these people in Werribee? Yeah, that's right, that's get right. Get away with uh, yeah, know, yeah, yeah. See, attacking the poor, that's okay. Seriously. Because they can't speak back and they have no economic power. Anyway, there are people that want to do something about it and PIPSI, the Public Interest Before Corporate Interest Group, are having rallies on the first Friday of the month. Now, I believe that that is today. Today is the first Friday yes. of the month. Half past four at Federation Square... And uh, they'll, they'll be meeting there today, and you know, the next one would be March the 4th, if you can't get to the one today. It's fairly short, not suppose. Um, each month, they will be um, meeting at Federation Square, and they will march to the site of a different corporate criminal. I think that's right. the best description of these people. Yes. Today, they'll be marching from Federation Square, half past four. The march will start at five, and it will go to the Herald 
and weekly times building which is at 40 City Road South Bank and I've got a phone number should I give out the phone number? Sure sure I'll give out the phone it's not my phone number but I think I'm okay to give out the phone number if you want any more details 0439 395489. That's Pipsy. 0439 Just 9. Now, briefly, I assure you and everybody there, I just wanted to give a little bit of clarification from last week, and there's been a lot of people are getting you know, a bit upset. Some people think we speak too much about 9-11. Some people think... Well, one person definitely thinks we don't speak enough about 9-11. I just wanted to clarify a few things which, which raised questions with me. The third plane, well, we're told it was a plane, a Boeing 757, which reportedly crashed into the Pentagon. Uh, and, and, you know, and I've seen where they say that it was 11 seconds away from the White House. It then was diverted. It circled the Pentagon and it crashed into the Pentagon at a very, very low altitude. Right? I mean, this is a 757 passenger plane. It's huge. These things are huge. And they fly very, very fast. And we were told that this was flying at over 500 miles per hour. Now, the question has been asked, could badly trained or even untrained pilots have performed such expert maneuvers as would have been required to do this? We could also mention the first two cases, the planes, as we're told, the planes, uh, which crash into the first the two buildings of the World Trade Center. Some people argue that even a plane flown by an expert pilot couldn't fly at such high speeds, over 500 miles per hour. That's over 800 k's per hour. Mm-hmm. I didn't know they could fly that fast, but over 800 k's per hour. Some people say that anyone flying the plane, they couldn't fly at such low altitude. This is, you're talking about the attack on the Pentagon. Well, the, the third one is the attack on the Pentagon, but even the attack on the Twin Towers, right, it's still going up fairly low altitude. It's fairly low altitude, right? It's a skyscraper building. It's still fairly low altitude for a plane. Can it fly at such speeds without disintegrating enemy there? I think these are legitimate questions. I think they're really, legitimate really questions too, but I should add that we're not going to take any more callers mm. on 9-11. We have canvassed this Widely, I think we've given a fair go to everybody who's had doubt about it. There's plenty of material on the internet if you want to pursue it. I don't think it's worth us discussing this forever and ever. It doesn't this, affect the class yeah, struggle today. This is, yeah, this is and as said, you pointed out last week, its main function was to mm. provide a pretext for US imperialism yes. to go in the Middle East. Mm. That's the importance of it. Who actually did it? We don't know. We probably will never know. And there's no point in us discussing it any further. Yeah, this is not censorship. This is just that. I mean, I think some folks. I think that some folk could bring this up repeatedly. Every single week of bringing this up are really not doing their own cause. No, they're good. not. They're not. You and know, just, uh, and I think the listeners have had enough. Yeah, they, and, they've and had a canvas. If you're interested. Go and look it up. Yeah, sure, and definitely look it up. I mean, for instance, in 2001, could mobile phone calls actually have been received? Right on the ground from passengers flying at such heights and such speeds, you know, because we're told that this was the case. Did uh, Vice President Dick Cheney deliberately prevent interceptor planes from protecting the Washington targets on that morning? Was Rumsfeld also negligent? I mean, I wouldn't put anything past Rumsfeld and Cheney. No, nor would I. I wouldn't trust them as far as I could spit, you know. But I mean, uh, we we, we do need. But we have canvassed the issue with, I think. 
I think shown that there are legitimate questions to be to be asked. Mm. We don't believe we've got the answers. We don't believe the answers can be found. Mm. Finish. Yeah, because you Finish. know you, you have people on either side, and one side is they, they get referred to as the truthers. You know, yeah, the, yeah. the ones that warn yeah, the yeah. truth. The, the graffiti rubbish bins, some of these people, there's a rubbish bin where I am, and around the northern suburbs, you ever notice they have these rubbish bins, mm. which uh, have WTC.net, it's seven, WTC7.net, I think it's referring to the seventh building, right, right, controlled right. demolition, right. on rubbish bins. <laughs> put this down. It's a yeah, strange, yeah, yeah, yeah. strange way of getting your message out. And they, it's not a priority. Our priority is <laughs> for the interest of our class. Yeah, well, for us, yeah. Yeah, this for is us. True, you know. But I think most people that ring up to the show, this would be a priority. But these people are called truthers. On the other side, you've got people, and some of them are really extreme. You know, these debunkers. You know, they come up with just as many extreme ideas to debunk the people yes, who question yes, yes, that's 9-11. Right. That's right. But anyway, like, it, it, it does become very, very... It's, it's a fascinating subject, but I think sometimes the way folk go I on think about it... We, we have dealt with it, I think... As fairly as we can, I, yeah. I mean, we've been slagged off, and I've been slagged off yeah. by both sides. You have. I'm either I'm I've, either I've a nutter. Yeah. I'm either a nutter for even entertaining any doubts about. Or you're a government stooge. Or I'm a government stooge. Yeah. So one or the other, you can't win. You can't win. We've had enough. You yeah. had enough. Okay, people, it's coming up to ten thirty. It's your chance to ring up on any topic bar one. Uh, and whether we've talked about it or not, and whether you agree with us or not. No, no, we, we need to go. Stretch, we, uh, we need to, uh, not yet. No, we'll yeah, wait till the call no comes through. The number to ring is 9419010155. Ring us up if you want to. And uh, thanks to those people who rang me up and uh, uh, took my side last week. That was very nice of them. Uh, <laughs> oh, I don't know who those people. Well, well, I won't, I won't name them, but uh, uh, I have received a couple of calls. So uh, okay, nice. so uh, we've got somebody on. No, Wadler goes up to the top there. Wadler yeah, goes uh, up, okay. Jan puts yeah, up in the uh, middle. No worries. And then you press the button itself and then the... It uh, all stays the same. Yeah, it all yeah. stays exactly the same. And, uh, so yeah, Wadler Jan puts that up. So the number to ring is 94190155, 94190155. Zero one double five. This is Keep Lefty Program of the Labour College with Chris Gaffney and John Lafferty. I don't know. I reckon it could. Um, be. The other little thing was while we're waiting for that call to be put through, of course, is that uh, the incursion by the U.S. Navy within the twelve-mile nautical territorial limit of Chinese-administered Triton Island, and the West are playing confrontation tactics in the South China Sea. Uh, the Chinese are attempting to, as it were, colonise little tiny rock atolls. Mm. Little junior imperialism. Well, little well, no, I, th- I think there's a legitimate... Uh, this is partly in reaction to the fact of the pivot to Asia. Yeah. It's a reaction by the Chinese to what is obviously reasonably aggressive war plans planned by Washington with the connivance of Australia. But the thing is, you might have to in future go into, you know, de- describing how you, how you believe the Chinese are these days as you've just done with the Russians. Well, yes. So, you know, we're not siding with China and saying that they are, they're not, you know, they're no angels neither. No, they're not. They're they're not, not we're not, not saying they're communists neither. What's that? We're not calling them communists. Oh, they're not communists either. I mean, anybody who calls them communists is willfully apt to deceive you. 
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.